Welcome to the Tougher Minds Masterclass about the greatest human strength, the science of improving well-being and performance. I'm Andrew Whitelam. I'm joined by Tougher Minds founder, Dr. John Finn. Hi, Andrew. In this masterclass, John will explain how insights from modern science can help us to be healthier, happier, and at our best more often in our work and our lives. These insights are equally applicable for individuals and teams. John will explain more about happiness, more about how our brains work, and he'll also explain how making small changes in your life allow you to develop new helpful habits. John will also guide us through some specific exercises which help everyone start working towards feeling well and performing better. These won't take long. Let's get started. John, we increasingly see reports about the well-being and performance challenges that people face in their lives and their work. One recent report suggests that the cost to employers is £94 billion in the UK. Why is it so difficult for people to be happy and successful in their lives and work? Why can life feel so challenging? Well, I think a, a good place to start here is thinking about the understanding that we might know what we want to achieve in our lives and our work, but accomplishing it is a different story. I remember a Peter Kay comedy DVD where he talks about going shopping and filling his kitchen cupboard full of chocolate biscuits. He says it's so full that he can't close the door. And then he announces that he'll start his diet on Monday, but then admits that he says that every week. So we might know what we want to do to be healthy, happy and at our best, but doing it is a different story. And the reason it's a different story is because of how our brain works. And the way that we think about our brain um, is the ape brain. And here we're drawing on a very famous neuroscientist work called Paul McLean. Paul McLean was the first guy to really make sense of how the brain worked as one unit. And he talked about it's kind of three mini brains within the brain. So we call the limbic regions of the brain the ape brain. And that stands for an acronym stands for the A stands for staying alive, the P stands for perceived, and the E stands for energy. And because of these fundamental drivers of how we think and how we behave, doing the kind of stuff that we like to do is challenging. And I think at this point, it's probably worth me introducing myself and where I'm coming from. So I've worked in this very exciting area of well-being and, and performance psychology for over t of nearly 20 years now. And we work with some of the biggest companies in the world. We work with companies that are growing really quickly. We also work in education. But actually, where I began my career and many of my colleagues began theirs was in sports psychology. And about 15 years ago, I had one of the most informative experiences in my professional career. So I was working in the backroom staff of a professional football team in a psychology capacity. And that team won the league against the odds. So we were more favourites to be relegated than actually win the league. And when we reflected on this, we knew we'd done something really special as a team. But actually, when we looked at the data, it was better than we understood because we'd only spent £3.3 .3 million, or rather we'd spent £3.3 .3 million less on player wages uh, than our direct competitors. So that meant we spent 58% less on player wages than our direct competitors. So we were able to acquire league points for about £25,000 per point, where it was costing our competitors up to £66,000 per point. And I still believe that's a record in UK professional football for the cheapest league points acquired. So we really were performing 
to our potential, if not beyond our potential. And I got really interested in how we'd achieve this. And I pursued a PhD to under, understand more about how we created such a, a powerful team. And increasingly, what I find is that our clients are really interested in how do we help our team, our people to work even, even better together. And I think one of the main drivers behind that is the understanding that we now live in a world described as the VUCA world, which stands for volatility, uncertainty, complexity, and ambiguity. And what that means is if we think of maybe the S&P 500, which is a, an index in, in the USA about the top 500 performing companies. And if we look at the top 500 performing companies in, say, the 1920s, if you were on that list, the likelihood is that you'll be on the list for about 67 years. Um, so if you, if you were big in the 1920s, you're going to be big for a long time. But if we fast forward to today, the likelihood of being on that same list if you're in the top 500 is that you're only going to be there for about 15 years on average. So being a big company is not um, a guarantee of, of being around for a long time anymore. And if we look at that list now, lots of the companies didn't even exist 15, 20 years ago, like Amazon's and Google's and, and Facebook uh, and, and Uber, or certainly they've not been around for much more than 25 years. Interestingly, I saw the other day that, in the last 10 years, I think only Microsoft and Apple are, st are still the, on the top 10 um, biggest company in the world list. So that's this is what we're seeing is change all the time. FTSE 100 looks exactly the same. What's happening, what's driving those changes is changes in technology. So until the late 1990s, the kind of tech that we'd, we had a, we'd had around that was really influential in what we did every day had, had been around for a long time. And what started to happen as we entered the 2000s was we got a real um, expansion in some core technologies like machine learning and artificial intelligence. And these technologies really started to change what we were able to do and they changed the world around us. So if we think about what most of us got paid to do yesterday, already we estimate that 45% of that type of work can be automated by technology. So that's the technology that already exists, never mind what's going to be around in the next 10 years or so. And we're seeing that the world is changing. There's a Japanese insurance company that has replaced all of its underwriters with algorithms, and apparently you can't tell the difference. Uh, we're seeing big banks like Citibank saying that they're going to you know, half their sort of 20,000 workforce of IT and operations people, they're going to shed about 10,000 of those jobs over the next five years or so. They're going to automate those jobs. They're saying this publicly. Um, we're seeing the high street has been decimated in the UK because now we have the technology in our pocket that's powerful enough so we don't have to go to the shop anymore. Physically, we can buy it from the device in our pocket. Um, we work a lot with big banks and I work a lot in the States as well. And one of the last times I was in the States, there was a big story uh, talking about the Detroit car manufacturers saying that we're not car manufacturers anymore, we're technology companies. And some of the banks we work for said, said the same, said that we're not banks anymore, we're technology companies with banking licenses. So there's only one constant in the world that we live in and that constant is change and the change is getting faster and faster and faster. So... Before I go any further, I want to point out that in any session, any learning session like this, 
we have to be mindful that our short-term memory only lasts about 30 seconds and we can only hold maybe five to seven bits of information at a time. So all of the time, our brain is dumping information. And one way that we can retain information is by writing things down and testing ourselves. So I would encourage you to do that as we work through this, whether it's in your in your uh, note section of your phone or with a pen and paper or, or whatever it is, just to test to see what you've learned so far. I'm going to ask you a little test question. So what does VUCA stand for? So you can think this in your own head or you could write it down if you wanted to. You can press pause if you want a little bit more time to think. Uh, but the answer is, in case you forgot it, it's uh, volatility, uncertainty, complexity and ambiguity and that those those four big areas are causing lots of change or they're describing the kind of change that's going on in our world that's that's crazy that's creating a lot of problems for people and businesses well john no doubt many of us will recognize that we're experiencing this this constant change that you've described in our lives what sort of feedback do you hear from the people, the organizations and, and the businesses that you work with? If you want to fulfill your potential or help other people fulfill their potential so you can feel great and get the rewards and respect you deserve, then I want to give you a free physical copy of my new best-selling book. Because you deserve to know the truth. The most important things for fulfilling your potential are not tips, tricks, hacks, therapy, coaching, meditation, breathwork, goal setting, journaling or finding your why. I know it sounds irrational because we're so used to hearing about using these things to help us fulfill our potential. But these approaches are outdated and ineffective and they are based on a big lie. To find out more and get your free physical copy of Dr. John Finn's best-selling book, The Habit Mechanic, go to tougherminds.co.uk. Well, I think everyone is going through change, whether it's agile change or new technology coming into the workplace or people being asked to work more remotely. And often those things are all connected. And this, it's not just bricks and mortar change, it's businesses asking people to fundamentally change what they do. And this can be challenging because, as we're going to find out, most of what we're doing is mindless behaviour. And these changes, they don't only affect what goes on at work, they affect every aspect of people's lives. So we're seeing this everywhere that we look. What's the right response then, John, when people teams and organizations find themselves in these scenarios? How can businesses help their people to overcome these challenges? So I think what we need to do is we need to focus on creating high-performing teams. And I'll, I'll tell you why I think that. If we think about human beings, we are designed to survive. That's the fundamental thing we're designed to do. And if you think about ourselves in comparison to other animals on the planet, we're not the biggest, we're not the fastest, we're not the strongest. So the main reason that we've prospered more than any other is our unique ability to intelligently work together and essentially to outsmart competitor species. And you can think of this as collective intelligence and the collective intelligence of a group of people working together is potentially greater than the sum of its parts. It's also potentially less than the sum of its parts as well if we don't get it right. 
but throughout our history, working as a team has made it easier to innovate, learn from mistakes, and ultimately succeed and thrive. And cooperation and connection not only helped us to be healthier and happier, but this collective effort is the source of all great advancements in our society. And being part of a team is fundamental to being human. But some might say that currently we're facing a team crisis because we live in a world which, re which rewards narcissism much more than the selflessness that's needed to create high-performing teams. And if we re reflect on some recent uh, data from the World Economic Forum, and I would say there's this, this shocking conclusions were drawn from uh, what we call the, the Global Agenda Survey, because it showed that actually 86% of the respondents felt the world has a leadership crisis. And the reason that's so problematic is because teams need leaders and successful organizations and societies need high-performing teams. So this is the problem. So our fast-changing world means that our organizations and societies need to be better than ever at innovating quickly if we want to stay ahead of the competition from an organizational perspective, but from a, you know, a country perspective as well. It's a, it's a deeply competitive world that we live in. But the VUCA world, that makes this really difficult. It makes it difficult for individuals to function really well. It makes it difficult for teams to, to perform at their best. So back to your point, Andrew, that many, many businesses are asking themselves the question, how can we help our people and our teams to succeed and thrive in this challenging world? And, and I think a really good way to begin answering that, that question is to think about, well, you know, how do teams work and, and what are the core things that teams need to get right? So I'm, I'm going to give some insight into that. We've created a, a model that we call the team power model. And it's metaphorically, it's a, it's a mountain. So we move from the bottom of the mountain and we're collectively trying to achieve our goals at the top of the mountain. And there are five core stages in this model. I'll, I'll quickly go through them, but I want to spend the most the most part of this masterclass just on one of these stages. The first stage is what we call me power conditioning. This is about individuals in the team choosing to bring them their best selves to work, choosing to really look after themselves, choosing to be at their best. Because if you want to have a high performing team, everybody needs to be doing that. And then the next stage in the model is what we call the community base camp. This is where the team gets together and it starts to decide on what are the big goals are that it's working towards what are the priorities in the short term that they need to focus on to help them to achieve their goals and also decide on what, what's each team member's roles and responsibilities in helping the team deliver those priorities. Stage three is what we call climbing support. So once we've set our goals and our priorities out and we know our roles and responsibilities, then each day we come into work and we work together and we support each other in the way that we behave and what we say to each other. And then periodically, stage four is what we call the campfire discussions. This is where we help each other, where we do peer-to-peer -peer coaching, and we help each other to develop those personal assets that are going to help the team to ultimately achieve its goals. And then the final stage we call the group climbing review. This is where, again, periodically, maybe every uh, four to six weeks, we might sit down together as a group and revisit some of those ideas, some of the the big goals and the priorities that we talked about in the community base camp. 
decide whether those things are still relevant or not. Is that goal still relevant? Uh, is that still our number one priority, et cetera? So that's a big overview. And if we want to create high-performing teams, it's really helpful to have um, a framework that we're using to think about how our team should be structured and how efficient and effective they are. But as I said, I want to spend most of the time in this masterclass talking about the first stage, the first stage of what it takes to be a high-performing team. Because if we don't get this right, everything else is irrelevant. We call this stage again, me, power conditioning. And this is all about purposely choosing to work towards being at your best. So you could think of a continuum here. Uh, one end of the continuum could be I refuse or we refuse to work towards being at our best. And the other end of the continuum is I choose to work towards being at my best. A really important thing to point out here is that actually if you want to be happy and being happy is increasingly pursued by people in society, um, and, and rightly so, our, our government measures this as well using something called the UK Happiness Index. If you want to be happy, it turns out it's actually quite hard to do. And if we want to be happy, we need to be choosing to work towards being at our best. So to understand that, we need to think, well, what is happiness? Well, it's a two-sided coin. One side of, of, of being happy is what we call hedonism. This is about short-term gratification. So it's about doing things in the short term that make you feel better, but are not necessarily good for you in the long term. So eating that tasty piece of food, breaking away from the task that you need to finish by the end of the day to check your social media or, or your messaging apps to check in with your friends and your family, buying that, uh, those clothes that you can't really afford, but you can get them on, 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 on a cheap credit and you feel the pressures of fast fashion to get something new in your wardrobe. Whatever it is, you, you get the idea and big business have, have, have made it easier than ever to get short-term gratification, to be on the hedonic treadmill, if you like. And this is important, but it's only one side of, of what it takes to be happy. The other side of the coin is what we call eudaimonia. Eudaimonia is all about making personal progress. It's about achieving, moving forwards, getting results. And it turns out that if people don't feel like they're, they're making personal progress in their lives, that they start to feel stifled and overwhelmed. And we think that this is deeply connected to uh, well-being problems, mental health problems, and also performance problems, because those ideas are, are connected. And what we find is that it's much more difficult to do the kind of stuff that allows us to make personal progress because personal progress is fundamentally about delaying short-term gratification. But if we look at how our brain is wired, our, our brain is really wired favorably towards finding it much easier to do short-term gratification stuff. And the parts of our brain that are responsible for that are the dominant parts of our brain. That's connected to what we call the eight brain right at the beginning of, of this masterclass. And sometimes we call that part of the brain the million dollar brain. That's how big and that's how powerful it is. And the parts of our brain that are connected to helping us to make personal progress, they're called the prefrontal cortex. And sometimes we call this the 10 cent brain. So we've got the million dollar brain that's interested in short-term gratification. And we've got the 10 cent brain that allows us to do the kind of stuff that, that makes it easy for us to make personal progress. So we're seeing here that there's a, there's a neurobiological imbalance and the VUCA world has made it even easier to get short-term gratification. So 
it's problematic if we want to be happy that we spend too much time doing things that give us short-term rewards. We need to spend more of our time doing things that make it easy for us to achieve big goals. And that starts with delaying short-term gratification. But that's ultimately difficult because of the way that our brain is wired. John, it is fair to say then that if we want to be healthy, happy and at our best, is it right then that we have to begin by taking personal responsibility for all this? Yes, exactly. Because ultimately we can control more controllable than our lives than anybody else can. And this can be a little bit confusing. So let's be very clear. When we say control the controllables, you might not be able to control your children waking you up tonight. But what you can control is how well you did your best to, to prepare yourself to have a great night's sleep. You might not be able to stop a client or a, a client or a colleague interrupting you today at work. But what you can do is prepare yourself as well as you possibly can to refocus well when that disruption occurs. It really is about us taking more personal control. And that's the essence of what me power conditioning means. So how can we begin then to understand the way that our brains affect our behavior and hence what we might call our primal instincts, I suppose, and then understand more clearly why this is so unhelpful for us all? Well, we have to start to understand how the brain works and big picture thinking, our brain is running on habits. That's the big idea that we need to understand about our brain. We have uh, most of what we're doing is mindless behavior. You can go to our website, which is tougherminds.co.uk. And if you scroll down the homepage there, you will see um, our free resources uh, section. And if you click into that section, you'll you'll see uh, a resource which describes how your brain works. And within that web page, there is a little test that asks you to, to read some copy out loud. And that's a really good way to demonstrate that most of what we're doing is a habit most of the time, because logically you shouldn't really be able to read those words out, yet we can. And we understand that at least 98% of what we're doing is a habit, it's mindless behavior. And let's just think about what's going on for us right now. So we're all breathing right now but we're not thinking consciously about breathing. We're not thinking, oh, breathe out. and Oh, I need to breathe back in again. It's just happening. It's just ticking away in the background. The way that I'm speaking right now is pretty mindless. It's pretty automatic. And the way that you're listening right now is pretty mindless and it's pretty automatic. Um, when I met, I met a new person this morning um, and unfortunately I wasn't being mean but I made a judgment about their entire life in about four seconds of meeting them. Now that doesn't sound very logical, but that's the way my brain works. And it's the way your brain works as well, because the brain does what's easiest and it jumps to conclusions. And the way that our brain works beyond that is that the more you practice doing something, the better you get at it. Because when you practice something, your brain changes via a process called neuroplasticity. So the hundred or so billion neurons in your brain, they are changing all the time in accordance with what you practice. So we get good at what we practice and we get better at the habits that we practice. And habits are so dominant that I would say that my experience of the world 
is what I'm in the habit of att- of attending to. So that's the same for all of us then? It's the same for every single person? That's what you're saying? Yeah, and it goes beyond that because your teams are running on habits, including your family unit. Your organization is running on habits. Habits are everything. They are driving everything that we do. And the challenge that we face is, is that we are not designed to be healthy, happy, and at our best as it looks in 21st century life. We are designed to survive first and foremost. And our brain's number one operating rule connected to this habit idea is that the easier it is to do something or think about something, the more likely it is we will do it. So that's the way that we work. And the challenge that we face is, is that this leads, unfortunately, to kind of a hangover of habits that increasingly get in the way of us being healthy, happy, and at our best in 21st century life. So Homo sapiens, we've been evolving for over 200,000 years, some would say over 300,000 years. And some of the habits that have helped us to survive, they've increasingly become unhelpful. So worrying, for example, is an unhelpful habit. And if you want to get really good at worrying, all you need to do is, it's as simple as this, all you need to do is just practice worrying a lot and you become a world champion worrier. If you want to get good at beating yourself up, it's exactly the same. If you want to get good at procrastinating, it's exactly the same. If you want to get good at uh, giving into temptation, it's exactly the same. And we've got all these unhelpful habits that we're starting to understand are the biggest waste of resources for any one individual at any uh, in any uh, 24-hour period. And if they're the biggest waste of resources for any one individual, they're the biggest waste of resources for a team or a family unit or an entire organization. And the biggest waste of resources for a few reasons. One is because they're broadly invisible to us. We don't see, our, we don't see ourselves beating ourselves up and worrying. Like they're kind of mindless behaviors. And therefore, we don't really, really realize uh, the problems that they cause and the time that they waste. And number two is doing those things, they often directly detract away from the kind of stuff that we're trying to do to be healthier and happier and, and at our best more often. And I think the third challenge is, which is a relatively new challenge, is that big business has made it easier to do these often really unhelpful things, procrastinating, uh, giving in easily, giving into short-term gratification. Big business has made it easier than ever to do that. So what we're saying is that these kind of uh, challenges, these kind of unhelpful habits rather, are making it more difficult to deal with the kind of things that we need to deal with to be successful in the 21st century. So they make it more difficult to be physically well and mentally well and to be productive and to manage stress and to be innovative and to optimize our own performance and to be a great leader and to be a great manager. They just get in the way of doing the kind of stuff that we need to do to be successful. So quick summary, we live in a world called the VUCA world where the only constant is change, but we have a brain that's designed to survive And it has a number one operating rule of the easier it is to do something or think about something, the more likely it is you will do it. What that is leading to is whether you're an adult, a child, or a teenager, more people than ever before 
are reporting that they do not feel very well. And if we look at recent data around that, we're seeing that mental health problems are costing employers between in, in the UK between 42 to 45 billion a year. And what we're seeing here is that very clear connection, but it's not often talked about, between mental health and well-being and performance. Those two things are completely connected. And we can describe why they why these problems are unfolding and getting bigger scientifically. When we look at the science, it makes complete sense as to why people are struggling. And when we live in a world where the only constant is change, and we are fundamentally designed not to change, to keep doing the same things, that's what's most easy for us, is to keep doing the same things at work. There's only one outcome there for businesses, and that outcome is failure. Because if you keep doing the same thing in the VUCA world, you will fail. And what we're also seeing is that even if people know that they, they need to change, it's not quite as easy as that. So if you want to fail in this world, there's one guarantee where to do that, and it's just to keep doing what you always did. So really then, the key thing to understand here is that people probably are not going to notice how mindless their behavior is and how that's affecting them and how that's problematic for them in their lives and their work. Yes, exactly. Because we are so driven by habits and mindless behavior, we don't notice ourselves. And I think that's why movements like mindfulness have been so um, captivating for people. Because maybe for a lot of people, it's the first time they've been able to step back and reflect so the fact that we are so habitual gets in the way of us seeing ourselves and recognizing ourselves, both recognizing the really good stuff that we do, but also recognizing the stuff that's damaging for us and, and gets in the way of us being healthy, happy and at our best. And, and how can we all begin working towards improving our own well-being then and our personal performance? I suppose, in other words, feeling better and being better. It's a good question, Andrew. This takes us back to me power conditioning. We're not helpless. We can, we can do better. We can take more control. Me power conditioning really is all about stepping back and recognizing our habits, both our helpful habits and our unhelpful habits. And what we teach people to do is to just target one small unhelpful habit at a time. And we teach people how to build new helpful habits to replace that one unhelpful habit. And then we help them to build the habit of building better habits. So they keep building more and more helpful habits. And this is how we help people to take more control of that. So, so, so important, but often elusive personal progress that is fundamental to us feeling well. And when we get organizations and teams all working on themselves, all working on, one small and helpful habit and building up more and more helpful habits. We create what we call purposeful development teams or purposeful development organizations. And these types of organizations are doing much better in the challenging world that we live in, where the only constant is change. And the kind of outcomes they're getting are connected to improved performance, greater well-being, enhanced resilience, increased productivity, increased innovation, reduced stress, improved morale, improved employee retention and engagement, improved leadership development, better performance under pressure. So just getting people 
to work on themselves and to keep working on becoming a better version of themselves is leading to all these fantastic outcomes that I know all businesses, they want to achieve. So if we want to do better in this challenging VUCA world, we need to engage in more me power conditioning. And this is fundamentally about helping people to make small adjustments because we can make change, but we can't make big change. We can just make small adjustments, build small, new, helpful, little habits. And the kind of habits that we find is really helpful for people to build are connected to some fundamental ideas like better sleep, better diet, better exercise, but also building better habits around how they manage stress, better habits around how they talk to themselves so that they spend less time thinking about unhelpful thoughts, better habits around performing under pressure, better habits around productivity so they can get more done in less time and they can be more creative and more innovative, better habits around building and maintaining what we call robust confidence levels, and also better habits of, about being a great leader. And that's, that's the other part of, of, of creating environments where it's, where it's easier for people to be at their best more often. One part is upskilling people so they can do more me power conditioning, but then you have to upskill what we call transformational leaders so that they can become what we might call the habit mechanics in the environment. So they can also help people to make this, these small changes to their behavior on a, on a regular basis. And everyone's very familiar with this language of uh, change management. For me, the heart of successful change management is what I would call personal change management. You know, change is very person-centric, so organizational change is very person-centric. So we have to empower the individuals who are going to deliver the change to understand how to make these small changes to themselves. And that's kind of a three-step process. Number one is you have to help people to step back and reflect, and we're going to show how to do that later on in this masterclass, and help people to understand what are, the, what are their really important habits that I would call progress habits that actually help them every day to be at their best, and also what are the habits that are getting in the way of them being at their best. And then once an individual has highlighted one small helpful habit that they want to work on, we then have to give people the knowledge and the skills to be able to do that. So if someone wants to get better at managing stress, they're going to need some new knowledge and some new skills to help them to do that more effectively. But that isn't enough. The third step here is that they need to then create and, and help to be helped to create what we call a habit program. So we need to help that person to create this kind of personal change program that's going to make it easier for them to build a new habit. And that means that we need to surround them with simple and practical triggers, for example, that keep reinforcing the stuff that they're trying to work on. So if we want to help people to be at their best more often, we can do it via me power conditioning and via this simple process called personal change management. That is three simple steps. You help people to reflect on their habits, their helpful ones, their unhelpful ones. You help them to target one small and helpful habit that they want to improve. The second step is that Often people are going to need new knowledge and new skills to help them to build a new habit in this area. And the third step is you've got to help people to create a habit building plan that's going to make it as easy as possible for them to take this idea and build it into a new habit that is relatively automated. And we have something called uh, the nine action factor model 
that we use to, to help individuals to make these changes and to help, help organizations uh, make, make the change and to help transformational leaders help others to change. So in combination, that's how we start to create more powerful teams by empowering the individuals to make personal change, but also empowering the people around them to help them to make that change. That leads to purposeful development organizations, purposeful development teams. These types of organizations and teams are just doing much better in this challenging world that we live in. So John, what examples of this phenomenon that you've highlighted do we see in our society today? I mean, how have businesses and organizations been affected by it? Now you're testing me, Andrew. So <laughs> um, I think I think Kodak's a really good example here. Um, Kodak. Kodak, yes. Yeah. So I think in 1996, Kodak was the world's fifth biggest brand. It was valued about $31 billion. And in 2012, quite famously, it filed for bankruptcy. And one of the core drivers behind that was that digital cameras were embedded into mobile phones about 2007. And that essentially decimated Kodak's core business, which was selling camera film, kind of made that irrelevant. And at first glance, you might look at that and, and people have and say, well, you know, Kodak, Kodak failed because they didn't innovate. And when you actually start to look at the details, it, that, that isn't the case at all. Kodak, in fact, invented the first digital camera in 1975. And in the 30 years building up to them filing for bankruptcy in 2012, it was reported that they actually invested about $25 billion into research and development. So I would say that Kodak didn't, didn't fail because they did not innovate. They failed because the senior leaders could not bring themselves to change course. In fact, they sold that digital camera or the rights to use it to Apple, for example. So they, they, Kodak failed to change because the individuals in the organizations couldn't change. And it really hammers home the point that, that successful change in any organization is going to start with personal change management and people getting in the habit of making these small changes and actually seeing the benefits of that and growing, growing the confidence that when we do change in the right way, life starts to get easier. So that's kind of a fail story. I think a, a really good example of a company that's doing this really well, it's a good, it's a good example because it's very well documented, is uh, Bridgewater Associates. It's headed up by a guy called Ray Dalio. Ray Dalio's written a few books recently and done some TED Talks around this. So Bridgewater are essentially a hedge fund. Uh, some would say they're the most successful hedge fund of all time. And the center of their business is really all about, you turn up to work today, guys, and we want you just to get a little bit better. Just get a little bit better than you were yesterday. And this creates a meritocracy in the organization. So you get rewarded in that organization for becoming a better version of yourselves. It's not about seniority. It's about people getting better. So that's an example that you can check out. Because of my sporting background and my passion for that, I also like sporting examples. And even though it feels like it was a while ago now, the England Rugby Union story of Clive Woodward when they won the World Cup in 2003 is a really good example. And that, that was a, a VUCA world example before the VUCA world was really labelled because rugby union was making this transition from an amateur sport to a professional sport and that brought lots of challenges and opportunities. And, and Clive Woodward really developed an organisation that was uh, purposefully developmental where he, he talked about recruiting people that were sponges and not rocks, people who wanted to get better, who wanted to work on themselves. 
So I think there's some good examples of where this where companies have failed because they didn't make the change quickly enough, uh, but also where examples where people have done this really well and, and had some success. That that is uh, certainly some fascinating examples you, you've given there. I'm sure people can relate to to some of those, um, and I'm sure that we'll all be reassured then that there is some good news here and we can change this situation. But how do we go about beginning the process of feeling better and being better in our lives and work? How do we start? Yeah, so we've got to step back and we call, most of what we're doing is mindless, it's it's habit-based. So we need to step back and think and watch ourselves. We call this um, intelligent self-watching. So watching ourselves intelligently, um, it's almost like you've got a CCTV camera on your brain and you're watching about what you're thinking and just noticing that. More people, I think, are doing this than ever before. But I would question whether it's really intelligent reflection that we're doing. It's one thing noticing that you're beating yourself up too much. It's another thing then being proactive about it and starting to, you know, do something about it. But just to, just to help us to think about self-watching, which sounds a little bit creepy, I know, but it says what it does on, on the tin. A, a, a little thought exercise for us. So I'm going to ask you to think about your health, your happiness and your performance. And what that looks like for you, what those three things look like when, when you're at your best. And you might want to write down a few words explaining what health means to you and what happiness means to you and what performance means to you. You know, what are the kind of things that you're doing when you're really healthy? What are the kind of things that you're you're doing that make you happy? What kind of things do you need to do to help you to feel like you're performing to your potential? And when, when you're doing this, recognize the core habits that are helping you to achieve those outcomes. So for example, when I feel healthy, I have lots of energy. And to feel like I have lots of energy, I need to be sleeping really well. So for me, a core health habit is really good, is really good sleep. So it's about connecting the outcomes that you want to achieve when you're feeling healthy, happier, and at your best. But also think about the habits that underpin that. So you might want to pause this right now and take a moment to reflect on that. You might want to come back to, to it later. It's entirely up to you. But this is a, a self-watching exercise. And what we're asking you to do is step back, think about your helpful habits and some of your unhelpful habits. And just just start thinking about which of those habits are helping you to be healthy, happy and at your best and which of the habits are getting in the way of you being healthy, happy and at your best. So once you've thought about that, we can then think about how can we start to build more new helpful habits. So to begin thinking about this, we're going to think about how we're thinking. I'm going to do a little exercise here. So I'm going to take my hands, I'm going to cup them onto my ears loosely and imagine that I'm wearing an invisible pair of headphones. You could try that out as well if you wanted. Just cup your hands over your ears nice and loosely and, and imagine that you're wearing an invisible pair of headphones. I want you to think about the size of the headphones and the colour and the brand and maybe a favourite radio station or podcast or song that's playing through the headphones. And as you're doing this, I want you to notice how you're talking to yourself. And if you don't think you're talking to yourself, I want you to notice how you're saying to yourself, I'm not talking to myself. I'm not a crazy person. So <laughs> we have to notice that we're thinking all the time and we can't turn it off. 
You know, even when we get into these situations where we're asked to clear our mind of all thoughts, uh, what we what we quickly recognise is that we can't do that, and our, our mind starts to think about all all kinds of things, like I need a haircut or. What about that problem I'm facing? What am I going to have for dinner tonight? Whatever it is, our brain is an attention machine. And not only that, we have a frog brain. Our, our brain is jumping from one, one source of attention to another source of attention. And, and the, the space between these jumps is getting shorter because our attention spans are getting shorter. So our brain is jumping. It gets distracted really easily. And our brain has a preference for what it pays attention to. We all have some idea of the big goals that we'd like to achieve and the kind of stuff we're going to need to do to move ourselves to achieve towards achieving those big goals. But quickly our brain gets sidetracked by short-term gratification and it kind of almost falls in th into this pit that stops us uh, getting over to the, getting over the chasm so that we can achieve our, our big goals. And, and to extend the challenge here, it's important to point out that we now live in a world, and this is this is becoming common language, we now live in a world that's described as the attention economy, where your attention is an asset. And actually some people talk about your eyeballs being the most important real estate or the most valuable real estate on the planet because every business is trying to get their attention into your eyeballs. And it feels like we are surrounded by people interrupting us. And it can feel harder than ever to pay sustained attention to anything for any period of time. So to help us think about how we think, we're going to, first of all, acknowledge that we're always thinking. But then secondly, I'm going to ask you to think of, think of what you're thinking about like this. That you can either think about things and do things that are helpful for you making progress towards being healthier happier and at your best more often or you can be thinking about things and doing things that are unhelpful for you this this stuff gets in the way of you making progress gets in the way of your health your happiness and your performance goals and this is not this is not the same as positive and negative thinking i'll say that again this is not this is not the same as positive and negative thinking if i really like donuts and I had three donuts for breakfast this morning, that would have maybe been a really positive experience in the short term, but it would have been a really unhelpful thing to do um, for my diet goals and my diet goals connected to my health and my happiness goals and my performance goals as well. If this morning my boss gave me some negative feedback in, a, in the kindest possible way about something that I'm trying to get better at, although that might have felt negative at the time, Actually, it would have been really helpful in me getting better at, at that thing because in order to get better at it, I need I need to make mistakes because that's how I'm going to learn and get better. So you can either be thinking about things and doing things that are helpful for you, moving towards and achieving your health, your happiness or your performance goals, or you can do be doing and thinking things that are unhelpful, get in the way of you being healthy, happier and at your best. But what I increasingly find, and people tell me they find this as well, is that it feels increasingly easy to be thinking about things and doing things that make it more difficult for me to be healthy, happy, and at my best. For example, it feels increasingly easy to beat myself up when I'm checking my social media and my brain starts to compare me to other people and, and tells me that I'm useless and I'm not doing good enough and everyone is doing better than me. 
because these social media services don't really care if I feel happy. I care about how much time I spend on them so that they can up the advertising rate. I also find that it feels increasingly easy to eat the wrong types of food because the supermarkets have got very clever at positioning uh, food which is high margin and therefore typically unhealthy because sugar is very cheap um, in, in places where I'm more likely to buy it. And I find it increasingly easy to to buy rubbish when I'm in the supermarket or, or where I'm out um, at a cafe or, or whatever because you know those places don't really care if I'm healthy. They care about how much money I spend in the store. And also I find it increasingly easy or rather increasingly difficult to pay sustained attention for any long period of time. I find it increasingly easy to get distracted and to get off task and to spend 10 minutes doing a job that I could have easily done in five minutes. And by the end of the day, I'm half an hour down. And by the end of the week, I'm half a day down. And that's time that I'm never going to get back. It just eats into my social time and my family time. Because the devices that I use don't really care if I'm productive. I care about how much I use the device and how much I build the habit of using their device. So that's the challenge that we face. And therefore, it goes back to this uh, challenge that we're facing in, in the UK, in the Western world, is that it's becoming increasingly difficult to function well and to be well. And therefore, if we can't be well, it's going to be hard to perform to our potential. And that's why those two things are so, so interconnected. And we need to, I think we need to talk about that more. So that, that's the problem. And just the final concept here is think about your time as a limited thing. There's only 24 hours in a day. Think of every day as a unit of 24 hours. And in that 24-hour period, you can either be doing things that are helpful for you or things that are unhelpful for you. And think of the 24-hour period. It's like a barcode. Instead of the black and the white lines, think of having red lines for unhelpful things that you're thinking and doing and blue lines for helpful things that you're thinking and doing. And ultimately you're going to have some red lines and you're going to have some blue lines. And what me power conditioning is all about is helping you to identify the red lines and squeeze them out one small red line at a time. So we're always thinking can either be helpful or unhelpful. So I think it's useful at this point to give a quick summary of what we've discussed so far. We live in the VUCA world where the only constant in our lives and our work is change. We are as humans designed to survive. The brain's number one operating rule is that the easier it is to do something or think about something most significantly, the more likely it is that we'll do it. And we run on habits to conserve energy. And our ape brain doesn't like change. And finally, if we focus on building more helpful habits, one small habit at a time, being healthy, being happy and being at our best becomes much easier. John, to move us on then, please explain more about the nature of our brains and what you refer to as the ape brain. We've mentioned it a couple of times already. I, I also understand you're going to outline a form of test that we can all work through to understand a lot more about this. Yeah, so if we want to stop doing unhelpful things, I would think about that as resisting temptation. So you recognise, well, I just want to check my phone or just want to say that unhelpful thing to myself or... 
oh, that food looks really tasty. We have to resist doing that. And to really understand resisting, we have to understand the brain and how it works. And if you imagine, if you could take your brain out of your skull and you could chop it in half, like you'd chop an orange in half, you'd see the, the, the two core bits that we're really interested in. And maybe, maybe in another way we're going to think about this is that you, you can make a mini model of your brain by using your hand, either your left hand or your right hand. And if you hold your hand just just flat and you put the thumb into the palm of your hand and you wrap your fingers around your thumb and just hold it up, your hand up, you've got your thumb in the middle and you've got your little finger uh, touching the tip of your thumb. The thumb in the middle are the deep centres of your brain that we'd see if we chopped it in half which we call the limbic region. And the little finger is the, the part of your brain that runs behind the eyes up to the top of the, uh, the, the forehead, we call the prefrontal cortex. And we're going to think about these two areas of the brain. We're going to begin by thinking about the thumb in your model, the limbic regions, the big dominant part of your brain, the million dollar brain. And we're going, to, we're going to call that part of the brain the ape brain, as we've alluded to so far. But we're also going to imagine that the ape brain is run by a character called Hugh. Okay, so Hugh runs the ape brain. And Hugh stands for horribly unhelpful emotions. So it's H-U-E. H-U-E, horribly unhelpful emotions. And this is the kind of stuff that Hugh likes to get you to do and to think about he likes to give in to temptation and act impulsively, do things you regret, jump to conclusions, have no discipline to keep going when things get difficult, have no discipline to stay focused and complete a task, quit because you're bored or frustrated and there are more fun things to do, stop trying when the reward is a long time uh, away, beat yourself up when you make a mistake, not believe in yourself make excuses for bad behavior, worry about things you can't control. And this ultimately makes it more difficult to build the kind of habits that are going to be helpful for us in the challenging VUCA world. Habits connected to better sleep, better diet, better exercise. Habits connected to managing stress and thinking about helpful things for ourselves. Habits connected to performing under pressure and being more productive and creative and innovative and habits connected to managing and building robust levels of confidence, habits, connect, habits connected to being a great transformational leader. So that's the challenge that this part of our brain uh, brings. To help us to understand it in more detail, we're going to give you the opportunity to take the ape brain test. This is the test we talked about just then? Yes. So you can do this at our website. So if you go to tougherminds.co.uk, on any page there in the top right-hand corner, you'll see a little red, red button that takes you to the ape test. So you might want to pause and go go find that if you um, if you want to, or if not, I'm going to also shortly read through the questions. So let's just think about the ape test then and, and talk through it. So there are eleven statements in the ape test, and you read a statement. You can do this on behalf of yourself or somebody else, and you give each statement a score from one to ten. So one would equal that you never do that thing and 10 equals that you always do it. So statement number one is, I reflect on my diet, exercise, and sleep, and plan to make daily improvements in 
these areas. So if I never do that, I give myself a one. If I always do that, I give myself a 10. Or obviously you can give yourself an in-between score. Statement number two is at the end of the day, I always reflect and highlight what went well and what I can improve tomorrow. So again, if you never do that, you give yourself a, a one. And if you always do that, you give yourself a 10. Third statement, at the end of every week, I reflect on what went well and plan how I can improve next week. Fourth statement, from time to time, I think about my future. I set long, medium, short-term goals to focus my efforts and achieve major objectives. Again, you can give yourself a score for, for that. One would be I never do that. Ten would be I always do it. Statement five is I perform well under pressure. Again, one would be equal never. Ten would equal always or somewhere in between. Statement six, I recognize when I'm stressed and successfully plan to reduce my stress. Statement seven, I monitor my confidence levels and successfully build up confidence in areas where it is low. Statement eight, I recognize when my emotions are unhelpful and can successfully keep them under control. Statement nine, I successfully plan to improve my productivity levels. Statement 10, I successfully plan to spend less time dwelling on unhelpful thoughts. And final one, statement 11, I successfully plan to improve my performance as a leader. So you can rank all of those statements from one to 10, and 10 is always, one is never. And once you've done that, the next thing to do is, well, if you, if you do this online, you will see a summary of your, of your results. The next thing to do is, is identify the one area that if you think, if I make a small improvement in that area, that's the, that's, that's the smallest change that I can make in my life for the biggest return. And once you've, once you've hi highlighted that area, I'd like you to write down one small thing, or think about one small thing that you can do differently today it's going to improve you in that area. And the thing to do here is not to fall into the trap of being too general. So if it's a sleep um, area, for example, or you want to, you think you want to improve sleep, that'd be helpful for you. You might say, well, I want to get eight hours sleep tonight. or I want to get more sleep tonight. It's too vague a goal probably and too big a goal. If you're a, if you're a five hours a night sleep person, it's too big a goal uh, to, to achieve. So what you're better off doing is just saying, well, tonight I'm going to get five more minutes sleep than I did last night, even one more minute sleep than I did last night. We just, we just make these small little adjustments. That's all we can do. And if we write it down, we've got a better chance of making it happen because we switch on our neocortex. And what's also quite a, a good thing to do at this point is that you might see a few things on the ape test that you'd like to improve. And hopefully you see some things that, you're really pleased about as well some stuff that you're doing really good but the, the stuff that you want to improve unfortunately we don't have the resources to change it all at the same time but what i'd encourage you to do is to create what we call a me power wish list so you could write this down somewhere or open a new file in your in your phone notes and start to write down this the the habits that you'd like to build but it's a wish list it's not something you're going to change all at the same time and once you've built this new little habit that you're working on, 
you can then take that off and move on to the next one. I think at this point, it's probably also helpful to dig deeper about, well, what does APE stand for? We've touched on it right at the start, but and think about why these natural instincts might be problematic. So APE is an acronym. It's drawing on Paul McLean's work, the True Night Brain Model, and it's a two-fold acronym. We are great apes, so we're pointing towards that, but each letter also stands for something. And the words that, that they stand for are deeply connected to what we are designed to do. So the A in APE stands for staying alive, and there aren't many lions, tigers, and bears around anymore you know, that we're having to run away from. But this this part of our brain is still very much alive. Uh, so what does it look like now? Well, it's the part of the brain that tells you not to walk down the dark alley um, because it might be dangerous, not to walk through the park when it's dark. It's also the part of the brain that tells you to cross over the road when there's a maybe a dodgy group of people walking towards you. And there's some even more subtle things than that going on. So we know that if, when we meet people that look like us and they come from the same kind of place that we're from, it's just implicitly, mindlessly easier to trust them than it is people who look different to us and come from different places to where we come from. That's connected to this part of the brain. This part of the brain all mindlessly affiliates with things that feel safe. And there's some data in, in uh, the USA that shows that there's a disproportionate amount of, of dentists called Dennis. You know, because if you're called Dennis, then being a dentist feels quite familiar to you. There's also some data from uh, Maryland showing that in the state of Maryland, there's a disproportionate number of females called Mary, because again, that, that name feels safe. So that's the A. The P stands for perceived, and our our brain is all, always mindlessly concerned about how we're perceived by other important people. Because remember, we have evolved to work in teams and groups. And when we're in a, in a group, our survival chances go up. So we don't want to be kicked out of the group. We want to be liked by important people in our lives. So we have this powerful, mindless driver that's always making us think about our social status. And if we think about how this operates in the brain, the part of our brain that's interested in this is actually wired into the parts of our brain that tell us we are thirsty and we are hungry. So this social status is absolutely essential to us as human beings. And if we think about um, social pain, well, social pain and physical pain are very similar to the extent that uh, par things like paracetamols and ibuprofen, that they are just as good at helping us to manage social and emotional pain as they are physical pain, because our brain can't really distinguish between the two. And if we think about things like social media, you know, one of the reasons that social media has probably got so big is because it gives people the opportunity to tell everybody else how great they are, like uh, give people an edited version of their life. So it's all it's about impression management, really, all connected back to the P in the eight model. Finally, E, E, e is energy, and we are designed to conserve energy. So once we've once we're alive and our social status is in a good place, we want to conserve energy, and we do this in a number of ways. You know, there wasn't always a Tesco's on the corner or a Pret on the high street. We, um, for most of our existence, food has been a very scarce resource. Energy has been a very scarce resource. So we've got very good at 
conserving it. And that's why our brain runs on habits because running on habits is a really energy efficient way to operate. That's why our brain doesn't like changing things because changing requires energy. So we, we save energy by, as perverse as it sounds, by defaulting to eating high calorific food because our brain understands that there's, it takes us just as much energy to eat an apple, for example, as a donut, but there's a lot more energy in a donut. So it's going to go for the donut. We save energy. We're more sedentary than ever before. We sit more than we ever have done. Um, we take the lift or the elevator instead of the stairs. We drive instead of walk. We get off the bus or the tube as close as we can to where we're trying to get to. Um, you know, the, this this sedentary lifestyle we're living is causing a huge problem, and and uh, that's that's driven. That it's made easier to do because our brain wants to save energy. And then finally, we save energy. Or another example is that we default on mentally challenging work. So work that doesn't give you a short-term reward, new, new work that we call high-charge work that takes a lot of cognitive focus, it burns a lot of energy because it doesn't give you a, high, high, a fast reward. Your brain break, can break off it very quickly. So when you're procrastinating on work, what you're actually doing is saving, saving energy. And the A, the P, the staying alive, that's the BG's one, the staying alive, the mm-hmm. staying alive, the perceived and the energy, they are driving our fundamental behaviors and habits. The challenge that causes is, remember, we've been evolving for over 200,000 years, maybe even 300,000 years, is that the kind of stuff that we need to do to be successful in the VUCA world are often very different from the A, the P, and the E. So being successful in the modern world is all about excellence, becoming an expert, putting other people first, innovating, being a problem solver and a problem finder. And as as we're seeing, it's all about change, making changes, becoming better and better and better. We're automating more of the habit kind of work that needs to be done in organizations and we're becoming more and more valued for the clever thinking that we can do but our brain doesn't really like doing the clever thinking if it can all at all avoid it so what happens is the eight brain keeps hijacking us and that's again why it's really easy to feel overwhelmed in the modern world because we're just really not designed for the the modern workplace you know in the factory model which we saw span from kind of the first industrial revolution to the third industrial revolution was much more brain friendly. But as we enter the fourth industrial revolution, it's just not as easy for the, for the ape brain doesn't like it as much. So John, when, when the people you work with take the ape test, like we've just done, and and again, it's on tougherminds.co.uk. If people didn't follow along when you read through the questions, when people that you work with take this test, what sort of things do you see emerging? What are the common problems and the common issues that people report back to you? Well, I see a lot of people stopping after about three questions because <laughs> they don't like what they're hearing. Um, but when people get through it, I think the first takeaway is, wow, I thought I was doing okay. I, I've not really thought about myself like this before. And there's clearly some things that I can work on to become even better. I think you know, sleep, diet and exercise are fundamental um, for brain function. And last year, I think the NHS spent about 11 billion on lifestyle related diseases. So diseases that are generated because people are not eating, sleeping and exercising properly. So we know we have a, a, a problem with that and people recognize that as well. 
And actually, that, that's the bedrock for a lot of other things because it stops brain function. So if we don't sleep well, eat well, exercise well, productivity is more challenging. Regulating our emotions is more challenging, which actually fundamental, fundamentally is what all this is about, is getting better at emotional regulation. Becoming a better leader is more challenging. So I think, you know, different people identify different things. And that's what we're very aware of is that we don't want to prescribe people that they should be doing X, Y, or Z. We just want to inform people using the best science that we understand so they can make more sense of, of themselves. And we want to give people some tools that they can use. But ultimately, everyone's going to do that personal research on themselves to work out what do they need and what's going to work best for them. And that they'll only do that by, by trying things out. Is this contradiction then that you've highlighted between how we've evolved as humans and then now what's required of us in this 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 VUCA world, this volatile, uncertain, complex and ambiguous world you describe, is that a cause of stress to us then? Yeah, for sure. Some people say they don't get stressed, but I think we have to be clear with the, with the language here is this is a, a natural neurobiological process in our brains. It's natural. It happens to everybody. Sometimes we call it the fight or flight response. Um, and the reason this happens, probably worth thinking about it, is that we get a disconnection between what, we ex what we're expecting to happen versus what actually happens. So maybe I held the door open for somebody this morning and in my mind I expected that person to say, oh, thank you, thank you very much, it's very kind of you and you're such a gentleman, John. Maybe not the last bit, but um, <laughs> I, had an, I had a clear expectation of what was going to unfold in my mind. But then whatever happens, happens. And that if the person ignored me, I'd get a disconnection between what I expected to happen versus what happened. So there's an event. We have what we call a global sense of, of what's going to happen. We call global meaning. But then whatever happens in the situation happens. We call it situational meaning. When we get a disconnection between global meaning and situational meaning, that's a little stress. And depending on how many stresses you're experiencing, we'll, if you can kind of Im imagine a stress continuum at one end is very low stress, everything's fine, nothing's bothering you. The other end of the continuum um, is you're on the verge of losing control. You know, imagine the low end is one on the stress scale, the top end is 10. So depending on how, how many of these disconnections you're having will depend on whereabouts you are on the continuum. And once there's been a disconnection, the first thing that happens in your brain is that fight or flight response. And that's a very complex reaction is something called the HPA axis and loads of clever things going on in your brain. But the thing that we're really interested in is that we start to breathe faster. So within milliseconds, you start to breathe faster. That's because your brain is trying to take on board more oxygen, get rid of more carbon dioxide. So your brain is getting ready to do something. And we're interested in breathing, which we'll talk about not in this masterclass, but in other masterclasses, because it's the only part of the, the stress reaction that we can control. And the way, just help us to think about um, the first part of, of, of the stress response more clearly. I want to introduce an idea called activation. We have this concept called the activation scale. Now we created this concept to make to make anxiety easier to understand. Because for some people, anxiety is just a bad thing. But we understand that neurobiologically, anxiety can can be debilitative to us, but it can also f facilitate performance. So the activation dialogue, if you just imagine in your mind's eye, a scale, a bit like a speedometer, where you've got zero, zero, 
goes all the way around to 100. And if you're at zero, zero on the activation scale, it means that you're dead. Okay, <laughs> that's the starting point. And the activation uh, dial is just a representation of how alert you are, how fast your heart is beating, how quickly you're breathing. So when you're asleep, you're past zero, maybe you're a, somewhere between a one and a five and you're, you're breathing very slowly and your heart is beating very slowly. You're not very mentally alert to the outside world. And you come up to maybe a 10, 30, 20, 40, your numbers might still be quite low. And then you come round all the way around the other side uh, where your, your heart is beating faster, you're breathing faster. The high numbers, you might be nervous, you might be angry, you might be scared about something. Equally, you might be really excited because it kind of looks the same in your brain. And and the point is, is that there's, an, there's an, an ideal activation level for everything that we do every day. So I want you to think about this now. What's your current activation level? Just as you're listening, what's your current activation level? Now that will be different if you're sitting down listening to this or if you're up and around, walking, walking around listening to this. If you just think about where are you on the scale, have that number in your mind. There's no right or wrong answer. It's somewhere between zero, zero and a hundred. And I want you to think of a second number. The second number is what's your ideal activation level to be able to concentrate really well and learn as much as possible from this. That might be a different number. It might be a higher number than you currently are. It might be a lower number than you currently are. It might be the same number as you currently are. But the point I'm getting at is that we've got to match every task that we do every day with the correct activation level. So if you want to go, if you want to get a good night's sleep tonight, you're going to, be, you're going to need to be down maybe at a five or lower, but you just opened your emails and it was a bad email and you're up at an 80 because you're angry, you're going to be laying in bed at an 80 when you need to be at a five, you're going to be wasting your time. If you need to be at a six day to do really clever work, but you only try to do your clever work at the end of the day where you can only ever achieve maybe a, a 30 or a 40, then you're going to be sitting at your desk at a 30 or a 40, kind of wasting your time. And the point with the stress response is that it makes our activation levels higher than it needs to be. So we get a disconnection between what we expected to happen and what happens. The fight or flight response kicks in and our activation gets higher than it needs to be. We're, we're, needs to be. we're breathing faster. The second part of the stress response then is broadly we start to dwell on unhelpful thoughts. We beat ourselves up. We worry. Remember, we're always thinking. It's almost like we've got this torch of concentration and it's always on. And that torch of concentration can either be pointing towards or be focused on things that are helpful for you helpful for you making progress towards being healthier, happier, at your best more often, or it can be focused on things that are unhelpful. And typically in the stress response, it starts to get focused on things that are unhelpful. So that concept of activation then, you've clearly outlined it in such a way that it's so important and core to what you're, you're telling us in this masterclass. Uh, so please tell us more about how we can actually apply the concept in our lives and work. Yeah, so it's fundamental to everything that we do every single day. And we talk a lot about this in our productivity work, but a very quick overview. Good sleep, good diet, good exercise is going to make it much easier to regulate activation. If you think about what humans are fundamentally designed to do, we're designed to walk about 12 miles per day, which sounds ridiculous, doesn't it? But that's what we're designed to do. And now we spend most of our time sitting 
doing sedentary work. We're actually sitting, doing work that's often quite mentally complex and challenging and increasingly mentally complex and challenging in the VUCA world where we need to keep solving problems and adapting and innovating. Humans are designed to walk about 12 miles a day and move around solving problems. So already we're at a massive activation disadvantage because of how our workplaces are set up. You know, we're seeing more standing desks coming to the workplace, for example. I, showing off now, I've got a, a work, <laughs> we've got a, a workstation treadmill that you can walk along as you're working. So it's recognizing that everything you do every day has an has a optimal activation level, and then it's working towards getting yourself to those right levels. So when you go to sleep tonight, you've got to, in the, in the hours before you want to go to sleep, you've got to work towards reducing that activation level. And there's, there's lots of things that you, you can do to make that happen. And when you say that and explain it, 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 you can see how activation will vary f for individuals throughout the day and, and why that understanding of application of the concept of activation is, can be so important to all of us. So, John, if we do experience excessive levels of stress then, and these experiences continue for us, what can actually happen to us? What are the consequences? I think it's helpful to step back and think about ourselves and, and other people. And we don't live in a in a vacuum or in, or in a compartment. We don't just live at work. We have a life outside of that. And in each area of our lives, there might be little disconnections, little things that are not going well. And in the math of stress, these little disconnections, which I would call sources of strain, they add up very quickly. So in the math of stress, one stress or one source of strain plus one source of strain doesn't necessarily equal two, it can equal 28, because depending on what they are. So we can get overwhelmed really quickly. And the challenge that we face as adults is that adults are not very good, according to big sets of compelling data, at looking at other adults and working out how well they're doing, because adults are very good at masking their emotions. And as I just said, we can't see into every corner of everybody's lives. So we just typically see them in one or two contexts. So we can get overwhelmed very quickly. And, you know, day after day, these little disconnections, they add up. And especially in periods of transition, which in the VUCA world, it feels like we're in a constant transition, you know, life can get really difficult. And if, if we're going to manage stress better, the first thing that we need to do should be happening in between the days is, is getting high quality sleep. And you can connect that to also getting a good exercise and good diet because we need to look after our brains properly if we're going to manage stress really well. And I'll, I'll come back and talk more about that. Once we've got our brains working well, the second thing we can do when we're noticing a stress, noticing ourselves thinking about something that's not unhelpful is write it down as quickly as you can. Write down what is bothering you, but also what's the disconnection? What did you expect to happen versus what's happening? And by doing that, you're starting to take control. Your eight brain is extremely powerful. And the part of our brain, the prefrontal cortex, which we're going to talk about more later, the, the prefrontal cortex we use to talk to our eight brain and to manage it, can only hold information for about 60 seconds, like I said right at the start of the masterclass, and can only hold maybe five to seven thoughts at, at one time. So when we're just trying to have a thinking argument with our eight brain, the eight brain keeps winning. 
So what we want to do is we want to write down what's what's bothering us as quickly as we can. Because when we write things down, it doesn't disappear in 30 seconds. And we can write down more than five to seven bits of information. So if you want to have a go at that, you might want to pause. I'd really encourage you to write it down, not just to think about it, because that's that's the magic, the application of writing down. And if we don't deal with these sources of strain, they ultimately damage our brain. And in particular, they damage an area of our brain called the hippocampus or the hippocampi, because there's only one in each hemisphere. And the reason that this is so problematic for those uh, for us is that the hippocampus, the hippocampi, they're the only sites in the human brain that we understand produce new brain cells. And if we want to manage stress well, having lots of new brain cells is really important because having lots of new brain cells allows us to step back, put perspective on things and think flexibly. If we don't have lots of new brain cells, it's much easier to get sucked into unhelpful um, thinking ruts where we just get into that negative thinking cycle. The other reason that we need new brain cells is to help us to learn and grow and get better. And obviously that's a constant in the VUCA world. So high levels of stress are hugely problematic for us. They don't only make us feel unwell, they make it more difficult to be confident and to be productive and to be creative and to motivate ourselves and to perform to our potential. And they get in the way, poor brain function because of stress gets in the way of us fulfilling our potential and of us developing lots of new habits. So again, we're seeing that strong connection between poor well-being, poor mental health and poor performance. They are connected ideas. And what we're starting to see now as we lift a lid on it is that this is all connected back to how your brain works. And when it's not working well, life gets very difficult. So hopefully now that's a good introduction to the hate brain in you and we know more about ourselves. Sorry if you're feeling slightly depressed at this point. Um, I'll give you a little throw ahead. We are we are going to talk about something slightly more positive. That's great to hear. Um, but that's that's the challenge that we face. And, you know, scientifically... Understanding performance and well-being, it's not an art, it's a science. And when we start to understand the science, what we see in our work is it starts to empower people to take more control of their lives. And that is the first step to being healthier, happier, and at your best in what is a a very difficult uh, period of history. So really, John, then, are you saying that if... if we fail to manage stress effectively. And, and by the way, I'm looking forward to the good news. If we if we fail to manage stress effectively and deal with it properly in our lives, in real terms, what you're saying is the brain can actually be damaged. Yeah, it's hard to see. Well, it's not hard to say. It's impossible to see our brain unless we go into a functional MRI scanner. But we kind of it's easy to forget that it's there, isn't it? It's not like a muscle on your arm or your leg or something you can see on your face. It's encased in a skull but yet it, it drives everything that we do. And for so long, we haven't really understood the brain. And, you know, even now we don't, we, by no stretch of the imagination, do we know everything about the brain? But we do have a really good gist of how it works and what we're designed to do. And yeah, you know, if we get overly stressed, our brain stops working properly. And, and our lifestyles have changed so much. If we just, we're, we're entering the fourth industrial revolution I think it's really good to step back and think about the first industrial revolution and just the differences in in what people were doing. 
You know, they were much more physical in, in how they worked. They couldn't keep getting bothered at, by email when they went home. They, they cut off from work. Work wasn't bleeding as much into their social time. Typically, we, we were more active in our in our lives generally. I think data showing that we were, work, we were walking back then maybe on average eight, eight miles a day. We were consuming much healthier foods, much less uh, processed foods. Um, life didn't have the luxury that it has now, but in a lot of ways it was simple and, and more helpful for brain function. And the the problems we're seeing in mental health and the knock-on effect of, of performance all goes back to people's brains not working properly. So yeah, it's important that we recognize that. And that's a very empowering message for people that I see when I share this message with people because it, it helps them to feel like they've got more control. So we've talked about it. We're all uh, waiting for it then. Is there any good news? What is this good news? Or are we just doomed to fail in this, this VUCA world? No, we can be proactive. The big message for organizations, for government here, is that this is not about bricks and mortar, spending more money, building more infrastructure. That's really important for sure. That's easy to do compared to this other stuff. What we need to do is help people to understand themselves better and teach them how to build small, new, helpful habits. We can do that by using the part of our brain that we call the prefrontal cortex. So if we go back to your little hand model, the little finger in your brain was the prefrontal cortex. It runs from behind your eyes all the way to the top of your forehead. We call this part of the brain the hack brain. I'll explain the acronym shortly. We imagine the hack brain is run by a character called Wilhelmina Power, or willpower. You can decide which one it is for you. And we can use the hack brain and willpower or Wilhelmina power to manage the eight brain and hue. So we talked about once we've recognized the unhelpful stuff that we're thinking and doing, we need to first of all resist doing it. And this is this is where Wilhelmina power and willpower comes in. It helps us to resist. But instead of using the, the term resisting temptation, we're going to now talk about helpful attention control. That's what hack means. We can hack our brain. Helpful attention control. If we can spend more of our time thinking about and doing things that are helpful for us, which is idiosyncratic and it's subjective and it's contextual, but if we can spend more of our time doing and thinking about things that are helpful for us, life gets easier. If you want to look at the science here, um, what we're calling hack, social scientists call, social scientists like Walter Michelle, Roy Burmeister, they call it self-control. And neuroscientists like James Gross, they call it emotional regulation. What it's worth, my PhD was in emotional regulation in very challenging career transitions for very high-performing people. And what we're calling hack, therefore, is the same as what those guys call self-control or what the neuroscientists call um, emotional regulation. The outcome of, of, of being able to hack your brain, regulate your emotions better, control yourself better, it's all the same thing. The outcome of doing those things is resilience, being resilient. Because you know, resilience is a very simple idea. Is, is that you're good at, if you're resilient, you're good at recognizing, well, you know what, doing this thing or thinking about this thing, that's not helpful for me. So I need to do something or think about something that's more helpful for me. That's all it really means. And when people are resilient, what we see is that it's easier for them to be healthier, happier, less stressed, they're more productive, they're more motivated, more confident, more creative, more innovative, easier for them to be at their best. How do we know this? 
because very famous scientists have been studying these ideas for well, since the 60s, for a very long time now. And all the data they collect points in the same direction. And they're so compelled by the evidence that they find that they call being able to hack your brain or regulate your emotions or deploy self-control. They call it the greatest human strength. You were wondering when we were going to get to that. Wow, yeah. That's, this is the greatest human strength. So what, what, this is predictive. If you're, if you're good at this, if you're good at hacking your brain, it's predictive for life outcomes. A huge new study came out very recently, again, pointing in the same direction. So what does it mean? It's predictive. It means if you're good at this, you're going to be more successful at school when you're younger, more successful in life when you're older, lower stress levels, better mental health, better physical health, happier, more popular with other people. It goes further than that. Stronger marriages, romantic relationships, more trusted Fewer drinking and drug problems. Remember, this is this is about recognizing doing that isn't very helpful for me. I need to be doing something that's different. Fewer eating disorders, fewer traffic accidents, less likely to commit crimes, lower partner abuse. This is this is serious stuff. All the stuff that is fundamental to us being good human beings is connected to, to, to this concept, hence the greatest human strength. And at the far end of your life, you live longer. So this predicts some of the, the, the most important life outcomes that we're, we're pursuing in 21st century life. So, I mean, who wouldn't want to, to experience and benefit from all that? That's a, a fairly startling list. And I guess, John, you'd say to people then that successfully hacking our brains can help us to improve things like our well-being and our personal performance in our lives and work. You already have, perhaps. And, and why then? Why is it referred to as the greatest human strength so fervently? Because it's like a Swiss army knife. If you think of your, in very simple terms, think of your prefrontal cortex like a muscle, it's not like a specific, other specific muscles we have in our body. It's a muscle for everything if you learn how to use it properly. And... Willpower hacking isn't the only thing that we need to do to get good, but it, it's the it's the starting line. It's that f it gives us that first ability to resist and to start to make the change. So think of it as a Swiss Army knife. And often we think of outcomes like improving performance and greater well-being as having different sources, different routes. The neuroscience and this evidence doesn't show that that is the case. It shows that it's all coming from the same source, hence the greatest human strength. This allows you to have better performance, greater well-being, enhanced resilience, help you to be more productive, more innovative, it will reduce your stress. In organisations, if you get people doing this collectively, it will improve morale, improve employee engagement. It, it helps leaders to become even better, it helps people to perform better under pressure. So that's why we call it the greatest human strength. You know, and the more I've worked in this area, the more compelled I am by that. Remember, I'm nearly 20 years into this now. This isn't a second career for me. It's what I've done. Um, I've done three degrees in this, including a PhD. And I, I talk about this stuff and I use it every single day. And if, if you get good at it, boy, doesn't life get a lot easier? It's so fascinating that this one attribute is so applicable across so many areas. But um, to move us on, John, please tell us more about the role that our willpower plays for us in hacking our brains, as you call it. How do we go about doing this? How do we put this into action? Yeah, so if we go back to this simple idea that we're always thinking, and imagine that spotlight of attention, it's always on something. 
It's about recognizing that actually thinking about this or doing this, this isn't helpful for me. And then we use the willpower to switch our attention back onto something that is helpful. It's as simple as that. So the willpower allows us to make that initial resistance. And then we have to deploy uh, what we call the nine action factors model to help us to keep persisting with the change that we want to make so we can build a new habit. But willpower or Wilhelmina power is the starting point. What is really helpful to recognize and what some people don't, and this leads to them beating themselves up quite a lot, which obviously isn't helpful, is that willpower is a limited resource. It's not unlimited. So that if you slept well last night, if you maybe did some exercise going into work this morning, maybe had some breakfast, your willpower is quite high in the morning. But then as you go through the course of the day, it gets depleted and it also gets de depleted throughout the course of the week and the quarter and the year, et cetera, which is why we need to you know, recharge our batteries. So it's a limited resource, but also it's a trainable resource, literally using that muscle idea again. It's like any other muscle. We can train it up and, and get better at using it. Now, we used to think that brains were fixed and that you know, after you physically stopped growing, your brain pretty much stopped changing. That was it. You know, the idea of a leopard never changes its spots, so to speak. And then we got this technology called functional MRI scanners. And that was the first time we were able to actually see inside the brain in real time. And that showed us that actually our brains are not fixed. They are changing all the time. And our brains are highly malleable. So the hundred billion or so neurons in your brain, they're like a plasticine, which is why we use it, the, the, the term neuroplasticity. It means that your neurons are like plastic in particular, like plasticine that they remold. And we can see again, using uh, brain scanning technology that the sites in our brain connected to hacking willpower they are like little muscles. The more we practice working them out, the stronger they get. And the better they get at dampening down uh, the hue and, and the ape brain's urges to do what, what are sometimes unhelpful things. You know, don't get me wrong, we need the ape brain and we, we need the ape brain and, and, and the prefrontal cortex to work better together. So it's not we need one, not the other. But actually what we find is that there's often a big imbalance. The ape brain is running things too much. Hue is... Has, has too much control. So we need to sharpen up the free, the prefrontal cortex regions, the hack brain and willpower to help to create a better balance in, in the brain. So we can use our limited willpower to hack the ape brain and ultimately direct it towards building small new helpful habits every day. So if we go back to the ape test, recognize that one small thing that we want to work on, we've got to focus our, putting our willpower onto, onto, onto that thing. You need to recognize that if you don't sleep well, you don't eat well, you don't exercise properly, willpower is going to be very limited anyway. Secondly, you might want to think about where is, when is your willpower most highest during the course of the day? And, you know, therefore do you need to do the most difficult thing, things at that point? But that's probably another talk. The big, the big idea here is that we are not helpless. We can do better, that the ape brain doesn't necessarily have to be in control all, all of the time. So now you know some stuff about um, the hack brain and willpower and we've got some insights about why it's important to, to manage the ape brain 
and and how we can start to do that. From from what you've said, then we're all able to improve our our own brain hacking skills. That's an opportunity we have. And and is it right to say that in the same way we can learn and improve a physical skill like? playing a sport, perhaps, we can actually learn how to hack our brains more effectively and gain the benefit from that. Is that available to us all? Yeah, exactly that. So this is a learning process. Um, everything you learn looks the same. It goes from uh, knowledge to skill to habit. So it starts by getting some new knowledge into your brain. You can only hold that for 30 seconds to get work it deeper into your brain. You need to repeat it. So yeah, we, we can learn to change our brain. We can learn to strengthen the areas of our brain connected to better hacking, uh, better willpower. So wherever you think you are right now, you can get better at it, even if you think you're already brilliant at it. The reality is that our life goes up and down. Sometimes everything's fine. Sometimes everything's rubbish. Sometimes things are in between. So it's this constant cycle of stepping back, recognizing this kind of stuff that we're doing, whether that's helpful or not. If we want to build a new habit, let's say around uh, building better sleep, getting some new knowledge and skills on that, and then creating a, a habit program around that that makes it easier for, for us to build that habit. And that changes our brain, physically changes your brain, like you, like you change a physical muscle in your body if you keep working it, working it out. Well, John, Thank you so much for the insight you've given us in this masterclass. It's probably appropriate now at this point to summarize and remind people of what we've discussed. The first thing is that we live in the VUCA world. VUCA stands for volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous. It describes the constant change and flux we all experience. If we're to meet this challenge, we should adjust to succeed. We need to change our habits and that's because at least 98% of what we do is a habit. And these habits mean that we're designed to survive. We're designed to survive and nothing else. Certainly not the type of challenges deal with the type of challenges that we face in the VUCA world. The stress that we experience in the VUCA world because of it can actually damage our brain. But there's good news because our willpower can put us in control and help us deal with this. It can put the brake on the ape brain, the part of our brain that drives this unhelpful behavior. You call that, John, hacking and being able to hack, use helpful attention control is our greatest strength. Indeed, you've described it as the greatest human strength. This was the Tougher Minds Masterclass about the greatest human strength, the science of improving well-being and performance. You can discover more about our Tougher Minds programs and resources by visiting the website tougherminds.co.uk. Thank you for listening.